Just don't shut it off. Just put it in your pocket just like that. Don't push any buttons. All right. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody. It's good to see you. Thanks for giving me a couple minutes of your time. Um, I am here to help kick off the David thing, and um, my job tonight is to make David more complicated. That seems to be what I do when I get to speak. So that's what we're here to do, is to make David more human for us. Uh, but in order to kind of get into that and... This cord's all weird. And into why that matters, I want to start with a little story. So I was a part of a Facebook uh, group, like, I don't know if people still do this, this was a while back, but you know, you'd, you'd go on a Facebook and all these people are interested in the same topics, comic books, movies, whatever, would be uh, on that posting things and talking. And uh, I was on a minister's, a pastor's Facebook group, so this is people within my denomination, and uh, this uh, article was posted about Bill Hybels. I don't know if you know who he is, it's fine if you don't. Um, but Bill Hybels is kind of responsible for the modern church. Everything you see, uh, the mega church to the smallest church and their marketing ploys, all of that originates with Bill Hybels in the 80s. And so a lot of people really think a lot of this guy, he's very important, had all these bestsellers, all this stuff. Well, a news article came out about uh, this uh, relationship he had with his secretary. And as I read this, this from a reputable magazine about this relationship, you can see the abuse and the power uh, differential and the way in which Hybels used his position to get what he wanted and trash this poor woman's life. There's all these interviews from different, even John Ortberg, if you know who he is, John Ortberg had left that church in protest over what, but it took another decade before anything happened and this cycle of abuse was put to an end. So this is a tragic story I'm reading, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is really terrible. Then I go to the comment section, <laughs> which is something you should not do on Facebook, but this is what I did, and I was horrified to, to look at this and to see all of these people who I either knew of, knew their families, knew the churches they pastored, knew what they were about, and they were in there defending highballs, and often using... Uh, shame language for this poor woman whose life is a shambles at the writing of this paper. And you might recognize some of these things. They accused her of trying to bring down a man of God. They accused her or the instance of driving a wedge, you know, in the church, splitting the church up, um, the devil causing mischief and mistrust. And then what was her place in this story? What was her culpability in the relationship? It was tragic as I watched all of these people rush to defend power, privilege, and position and ignore completely the powerless. And it, it breaks me to think that this is the power brokers in so many places. This is what we do. We defend the powerful and we ignore and push aside and accuse and find ways of pushing away the powerless and this is crazy to me because as Jesus shows up in Luke 4, what's the first thing he says? I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've come to declare the release of the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free, to bring good news to the poor. And we all know, if you've ever been in a position of poverty, that, that a pat on the back and I hope things work out well is nothing. It is not good news unless tangible good is brought into the life of another. And Jesus says, I came to bring the finger of God here, real transformation. And what have we done instead? 
At every single corner, we have found a way to silence those voices we need to hear. Why? Why? Where does this come from? I think one of the reasons is that we have been given, if you were raised or you've been a part of a conservative or evangelical or even maybe moderate church, Christian church, you have been handed an inheritance of flattening the text. Now, when you look at the Bible, what I mean by that is we flatten the text. And what I mean by that is, is we look at the Bible and we assume or we talk like it says the same thing all the way through. That every voice is exactly the same, that the Bible agrees with, its, with itself in every single instance. And this is simply factually untrue, right? What, a, what about this? A simple example. Uh, if you do good things, will God bless you? This is a question for you. Will he bless you? Can you find a verse in the Bible that says something like that? If you do good, if you follow God, God will bless you, right? Is there a verse in there you can think of? Can you think of a verse or a place that disagrees with that statement? Job, right? Immediately. You have Proverbs, which says, if you do good and you work hard and, and you do all those good things, then good things will happen to you. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Then Job comes along and sits on a pile of dung for 30 years, scraping pus off of his arms. And then Ecclesiastes comes along and says, don't worry about it. It's just all vapor. So their Bible is doing this conversation. It's, it's talking back and forth. It's, it's wrestling with this human experience because every single one of us has had the experience where something, where we worked hard and it paid off. You listen to Proverbs and it paid off. And all of us have been in a position where we were treated unjustly. Can I get a witness? Where you were treated unfairly, even though you were not culpable for anything. We have experienced this. And yet, so often in our churches, what we have done is we have flattened that experience out and said, no, the Bible says this all the way across. Well, I am here to say today, confidently, that that is not really true. That the reason we say and do those things is for safety, and by that I mean conformity. That it is easier to rally and to keep things together when everyone sits on this, this one, I call it this kind of, think of a stool, three-legged stool. There are three things that this stool requires, that you look like everyone else, that you act like everyone else, and you believe like everyone else. And if at any point one of those three prongs of that stool is removed, then you are going to fall. And that is my experience in every church except for chapel, <laughs> which is why I love this place and you all so much. Because we are afraid of the other. We are afraid of that which is uncomfortable. We are afraid of the experience of being wrong or, or whatever it is, we have this, this reaction against that other. And so we push against it and we flatten the Bible so that we can make everything fit nice and neat and clean. But if you look around you, that is not life. How do we flatten David out? When we come to the story of David, how do we flatten the text of David out? Have you ever heard it said that David was a man after God's own heart? Over and over again. I remember every, this, this was my, the, the last church I was involved with. Remember this man would, always, anytime the story, anything about David came up, especially anything critical of David came up, he would say, David was a man after God's own heart. And he flattened the text out. Because that one line overrid the entire story. It narrated, it created a lens by which he would read the entirety of David's story. 
In fact, I would suggest that I was taught that too, even though the first time that appears in the Bible doesn't refer to David at all. Samuel is speaking to Saul, and he's ticked off at Saul, and he says, God is going to rip the kingdom out of your hand and give it to somebody who will follow the religious precepts, because that's specifically what they're talking about, the religious practices of the Israelites of that time. And what was David very good at? He was good at religious practices, and he was good at killing. <laughs> and if you assume these are both heroic you might come off with a very interesting vision of who you think God is and what you think the Bible is doing. But maybe those are not both equally good. Maybe one of them is and one of them isn't. I think of David in just a couple of stories right off the bat. I think of David in the story of McCall, where David is entering into a relationship with his very first wife. Do you remember this story? And Saul says, I will give you my daughter, but first you have to kill a hundred Philistines and bring me their foreskins. I don't know what you have planned for Valentine's Day this year. Wouldn't suggest that. What does David do in that story? He comes back and he survives. Saul was hoping he wouldn't, but he survives miraculously. And this, instead of bringing a hundred, how many does he bring? Two hundred. Two hundred. An extra hundred people dead. A bunch, a hundred fathers will never come home. A hundred brothers will never be back. A hundred sons will be cried over. A hundred people who did not need to die, died. Now, is this a heroic, red-blooded story of power and victory? Or is it a story of a man of blood? The Bible doesn't say, interestingly enough. It just tells us a story and walks away. And you get to decide what you will do with that story. I would suggest that it's interesting to me, if nothing else, that when it comes to the end of David's life and David finally finds the thing that he is desperately passionate about, the thing he wants to do more than anything else, he wants to build a temple to his God, a beautiful, bright, golden temple. Do you remember what God says? He says, not for you. Your hands are full of blood. You are a man of blood. I am not a God of blood. I think of the story of David and Bathsheba. We know this story probably well, the most salacious of all the stories. And when I was raised in church and listened to that sermon, David was not given a free pass. He did some wrong things. But somehow we always got on to modesty. I don't know how that comes into the subject, but somehow it always found a way to make Bathsheba somehow culpable, as though she shouldn't have been bathing on the roof, which doesn't take into account culture, climate, context, architecture and the way that cities were set up and the critique that David gets at the very beginning of that chapter where it says everyone else went off to do their own thing but, stay, but David stayed home and what did he make? Mischief. But we've set him, we, we let it up because he's a man after God's own heart so he couldn't have been all wrong. It must have been Bathsheba too. She must have been. No, this is a story from beginning to end of sexual violence. Every pulpit from across the world should have been declaring this day one. This is a story of sexual violence, and we should call it what it is and not let David off of the hook for this. He was a man of his time. He was a man who had taken on the role of kingship. Do you remember how God felt about kingship? He didn't like it. Samuel 1, 1 Samuel chapter 8, he critiques kingship and he says, if you elect a king, if you bring a king and you set power over you, he will want your daughters for his harem. He will want your taxes for his wars. He will want your sons for his, his wars. And he will want your land so that he can feed his soldiers for his wars. And what did David do? 
all of those things. All of those things. So was he a man after God's own heart? Or was he all of those things? The Bible can be read very simply. You can read it like a children's story. You can turn it into a comic book. You can make it simple and flat and easy. And you can just say, if you do good, good things will happen to you. David was a hero, man after God's own heart. You can keep on going. And I wouldn't mind so much if we're just talking about how we interpret texts. But that's not just the problem, because how you read the Bible is how you read life. If you read the Bible as a simple children's story and you can just put a bumper sticker on it and make people feel better, if you think you can stick everyone inside of a box that really you have concocted, because if you think you have it figured out, even though you live 2,000 years in the future, don't speak the same language. In fact, what's interesting about 1 Samuel 13, when that David, um, man of God own heart thing first comes up, the first sentence in that, we don't know how to translate it. Because the text is so corrupt that we're not entirely sure if the word translated there should be 42 or 2. 32 or 2. We don't really know. Like, the Bible is so much more complex than we often give it credit for. And we have the choice. Will we take David and make him a hero? Or will we treat him like a human? Have you ever had a moment in your day, in your life, where you thought to yourself... A situation happened, and, and you thought to yourself, I did it. I didn't respond in kind. I, retain, I returned good for evil. I'm a good person. I did it. Any ever happened? Maybe this week, hopefully. At one point, you're like, I did a good deed. Yes. And have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror and said, I cannot believe I thought that thought. I cannot believe that came out of my mouth. I cannot believe that, that maybe I'm a little darker and more evil than I, I thought I was. You and I are a maelstrom of good and evil. This beautiful, compact, complex poem that God has set loose into the world who does both good and evil. Why would we treat the characters of Scripture like anything less? that did both good and evil. And what happens when we do that? We free that person up to be human, and we free ourselves from having the paranoid sense of needing to defend things. And instead, we get to live loosely with it and take lessons, real wisdom from life story. Have you ever sat with somebody who has, who you respect, a mentor, a parent, a grandparent, and they told you, listen, here's the mistake that I made. Don't do this. You ever had that experience? Did you listen to that experience and go like, man, I'm glad I didn't do it. The Bible is full of stories, exemplars, moments when people stand up for God or for each other in a way that is bright and beautiful. And there are stories of terror, of real human darkness. And the Bible gives them both to us. And I think it is a mistake for us to flatten that out and miss those dark moments because it is through those dark moments that we learn the important lesson to call power out when it does what is wicked. To lift the valleys up, to bring the mountains low, to remember that justice and mercy mean more than everything else. If there's anything that these crosses mean, wherever it went, there it is. These crosses mean it means this, that mercy triumphs over it. But it doesn't let it stand 
and just be as it is. It calls it to die. And the church has spent so long defending the powerful and not lifting up the powerless. And part of our problem with that is that we have not seen the powerless in our own stories. We haven't seen the crimes of the powerful in our own stories. So I want to encourage you that as we begin to engage this story of David, and maybe you read about David, that you read him as a complex figure, a human figure, not a hero, not a saint who never does anything wrong, but as a very dark and difficult individual who is struggling much like you are struggling. Let his errors be his errors. Let his, his sexual violence be his violence. And let us see that so that when we see that in the powerful, we do not gloss it over. We don't defend it. We listen to the powerless and we say, no, we've seen David go sideways before and we have to stop it now. We've seen David go sideways before and we have to stop it now because he's not a hero. No one is. We're all humans trying to figure it out, asking Jesus and one another to step in and to give us the mercy that we need, but also the justice that society and the world needs. As you read scripture, don't look for spotless saints to defend. Look for wisdom. Look for complexity. Look for mistakes and errors. Second, I would say stop making theological mountains out of biblical molehills. David was a man after God's own heart. That is one line in a couple of places. It does not define the entirety of his life. Like no line that you could say about Jordan or anyone else defines your entire life. We are too complicated for that. Just because one verse says it doesn't mean the whole thing isn't there. And that opens our eyes because... What's interesting about, I think, the first and second Samuel where we get the stories of David and then the first and second Chronicles where we get the other cycle of David, in both of those cycles, the critique of power is obvious. The point of Chronicles is to describe to us how the Israelites ended up in Babylon, in bondage, and why was it? Because of corruption and power. First Samuel is the same. It's the same thing. It's critiquing these things, not handing them off to us and giving it a pass. And if we can accomplish this, if we can begin to see these things, I think it will do something that I think everybody needs to do, especially today, and that is relax. Just relax a little bit. I didn't even, I, I flipped um, open the Psalms. I didn't even try. just want you to know that. I didn't even try. I just flipped it open and fell to the first one that had David on the front line. And this is what he says. This is Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink deep into the mire where there is no place for my feet. I have come into the deep waters and the flood has swept over me. I am weary of crying out and my throat is parched. My eyes are dim as I wait for God. Does that sound like a man who's got it all together? That sounds like my Tuesdays, man. Like, this sounds like somebody who is struggling to know what do I do next. And sometimes he puts the right foot in front of him. And sometimes, tragically and dangerously, he puts the wrong foot in front of him. And because he has so much power, he is able to do more damage, which is why we are always critiquing power. 
always rejecting it, always seeking for the lowly, always seeking for the powerless, always remembering that when Jesus came, he had a preferential option. And who is it for? The poor. That is where he went. And if we will be anything like David in his best days and Jesus on his every days, let it be this. Let it be that we seek to lift up the lowly, that we seek to bring the mighty low, and that we seek to amplify every voice that has been silenced over our long and complicated history, that we might be truly people worthy of the name of Jesus. Thanks.